I'm always amazed at God's timing. Here we are in Acts chapter 17, beginning our Sunday school lesson that we're beginning, and it's very relevant to what we're talking about even right here in the book of Acts. And the reason that is is because, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. The same things men have always struggled with, they still struggle with today. All right, so Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22 uh, through verse 34 to the end of the chapter. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Aragapite, Aropagite, which means he was a member of that council at the Aeropagus. Areopagus is actually. <laughs> and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Well, Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds and that you would, through the power of your gospel, not only transform us, Lord, do the ongoing work of conforming us to the very image of Jesus. We ask, God, that you would do this, that we would know and experience your goodness and your grace, your truth, your beauty, and your glory. But, Father, we ask this, that we would be a people, lights in this dark world that would give witness to Jesus. For men are without hope if they are without Jesus. And there is no philosophy, there is no worldview, there is no belief system by which man can be saved, but only by Jesus. 
that name which is above all other names. That is the name by which men must be saved. So, Father, help us to be witnesses to that name, that men would be saved and you would be glorified. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is here. He goes to Athens. Remember, he's waiting for the other disciples to come, and he's witnessing daily in the marketplace. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And evidently, uh, Paul became known enough to the philosophers who hung out in Athens. So um, the Oropagus was this hill where the philosophers would meet. And it had existed in Paul's day. By the time Paul came along, it had already been a place that men met for centuries. For over 300 years, men would meet there, the council of philosophers, the council of men who sought wisdom would meet there. It was a place where those who ruled Athens uh, would meet, but by the time Paul came there, Rome was ruling the world. The Greek Empire had already been overthrown um, almost a century now, probably more than a century by the Romans, and the decline of the Greek Empire was already in full force uh, for several centuries. And so this place called the Eropagus was, though, a place that remained a sacred place, a special place where the philosophers, those who sought, remember they were constantly seeking some new thing, some new way of thinking, and they would literally just meet there, and this is where they hung out and solved all the world's problems, to put it in, for lack of a better term. And these were the philosophers of the day, remember they were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who had a particular worldview about how the world worked, how it was formed, what it consisted of. They both believed in the atomic structure. Now this is, think about this, this is over 2,000 years ago. In 300 years before the birth of Christ, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers believed the world was made of this atomic structure. They didn't have electron microscopes. They didn't have any way of seeing into the infinite smallness of things. But they testified of God's created world, even though they rejected the Creator. And we see that this is not a new thing. This is a very old thing that man has struggled with since the creation. So verse 22 tells us, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. So lack of religion or devotion to the gods was not a problem in Athens. Quite the contrary. This word religion can also mean superstition. So in some of your translations, it says... It's translated from the Greek into English, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. Superstition, though, the way we understand it, is not what Paul was talking about. He wasn't calling these Greeks superstitious. He was not condemning them for their superstition. He was doing really the exact opposite. He was commending them because of their religious devotion. But he was 
pointing out to them that their devotion was misplaced. So this is true in our day as well. Religion is not a bad word. It's not a bad thing if the object of our religious devotion is the true and living God. Many people today see religion, though, as a negative thing. How many of you have heard someone say, I don't have a religion, I have a relationship? As if we want to separate ourselves from the idea of religion as if that's a bad thing. But if we do that, then we have to reject the writings of the Apostle James and the, the letter in the Bible, which tells us what pure and undefiled religion is, which is implying that we should be religious in the right way, just not in the wrong way. Or others boast that they're not religious, but they're spiritual. So many today, believer and non-believer alike, forsake religion for spirituality. Religion is really a term that's out of vogue. It's not, not in style anymore. But spirituality is something that you hear people in all walks of life talking about. So we forsake religion for spirituality as though one is inherently bad and the other inherently good. Some would imply religion does not involve relationship but spirituality does. Just as there are many religions, there are many spirits out there. You do understand this, right? And the Bible says that we are to test them, not boast in them. So 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And John goes on there in his letter and talks about the spirit of Antichrist that is already at work in the world. So while much of the church is waiting for the Antichrist to come, who has not come yet according to their end-time views, John wrote 2,000 years ago that the spirit of Antichrist, and the Antichrist is already well at work in the world. And what is the Antichrist? It is anything and anyone who is anti-Christ. The spirit of the age was then and is now anti-Christ. And the Bible tells us that we need to test the spirits to see whether they are of God. So spirituality can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing depending on the source and the focus of our spirituality. If it is in the Holy Spirit, our spirituality is life and peace. If it is in any other spirit than the Holy Spirit, then our spirituality is death. It leads to destruction. And so the Bible paints this very stark contrast there is a right religion and a wrong religion. There is a right spirituality. There is a wrong spirituality. And the contrast between the two could not be more clear. Religion can be useful or it can be useless. That is determined by how we walk out our religion and how we keep ourselves in this world. If we walk according to the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit and keep ourselves unspotted from this world, our religion is described as pure and undefiled before God. Pure and undefiled religion is only by the grace of God in Christ as our faith is working through love by our 
and in our willing obedience to God. So you see that faith and works, and this is what James does in his letter. He links faith with works. So faith inherently is linked to works. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. But our faith should produce something. It should produce works. Or we could say it like this. It should produce obedience. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. So you see that if our actions, if our words and our actions are not consistent with what we're professing, and if we're professing faith in Christ but our words and our actions aren't lining up with who Christ is, James says our religion is useless. And then he goes on to give an example of what pure and undefiled religion is before God and the Father. It's to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep one, oneself unspotted from the world. Now, he's not limiting that to the definition of pure and undefiled religion. He's giving us an example of what pure and undefiled religion is. In other words, it's not just saying I love God, but it's demonstrating my love for God through my love, my care, and my concern for those around me. So we should not shun the idea of religion. We should make sure that our religion is useful. So in verse 23, it goes on, and Paul says this. He says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. So among all the objects of worship that filled the city of Athens, there was an altar there with an an inscription that said to the unknown God. So this should tell us something about the religious devotion of the Athenians and the people that came to that city from all over the world to worship all of these gods through all of these objects. And they understood this, there's got to be in this infinite world, there's got to be a God that we've missed. So let's just make an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. When we know his name, when we discover what his name is, then we'll make an altar, an object to his name. But until then, we're just going to lump all of these unknown gods here and we're going we're to acknowledge this reality of the unknown God. Paul says, that's the God I want to talk to you about. The God you worship, but you don't know. So Paul, considering their religiosity, would proclaim to them the God they worship without knowing. And this is how Paul would present the gospel of Christ to these Athenians. This is what he did in the synagogue, This is what he did in the marketplace. He presented the gospel. And he presented it in the context that his audience would be able to understand and know. So if he was in the synagogue talking to Jews and believing Gentiles, he talked to them and presented to them something different in the context of their already believing in the God of the Scripture. Because what Paul had was the Old Testament scriptures. When he was in the marketplace, 
He was talking to, remember, whoever happened to be there. So it, it could be complete pagans who rejected the God of Judaism, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It, it was whoever was there, and it was in that context that Paul began to talk to them about this God of creation, the creator and the savior. And it was to the point that he got the attention of the philosophers, of those who were part of the council who met on this rocky hill, who had, had been this place for hundreds of years where the men in power, the men of influence, the men who would make the decisions concerning Athens, at some point in history concerning the whole empire, this is where they would meet. And they heard about this Paul meeting, going to the marketplace daily, spreading this idea, this some new idea, some new God. And they said, come and talk to us about this God. We want to hear more about it. And Paul says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. In other words, you have all of these nice shrines and temples and objects here, but I want you to know the God that you worship that you do not know is the God who created all of this, and he does not dwell in temples made with hands. And Paul would proclaim to them the God they worship without knowing. This is the God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. And by the way, this was not just true for the Athenians. It was also true for the Jews, as it is true for us today. The Jews believed that God dwelt in their temple. And the way God proved to them that that is not true is that God allowed that temple to be destroyed in 70 AD and he has not allowed it and I submit to you will not allow it to be rebuilt again because he has already erected the third temple that is the resurrected Lord of glory the Lord Jesus Christ who is the temple the true temple that we see in Revelation chapter 22 come this Wednesday and we'll finish talking about that First Kings chapter 8, verse 27. Solomon, after he has built and is dedicating the temple. But God, will God indeed dwell on the earth? That's a question Solomon asks. Behold, heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you. This is what Solomon declared about God. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. In Acts chapter 7, verse 48 through 50, as Stephen is making his statement to the Pharisees before they stone him to death because he offended them so severely by telling them the truth. Acts chapter 7, 48 through 50. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all of these things? The people 
and the city of Athens was very religious. They had made objects of worship. They had made much devotion to the gods, but it was all useless because it was misplaced. The objects of their worship, their religious devotion, were false and powerless to save them. Paul knew this, and this is why his spirit was provoked within him when he got to that city. He knew that the people of the city were misplacing their hope, that their hope was in all of these idols, all of these false gods, and he had with him, carrying with him the very presence of the God who created heaven and earth, the very God, the only God who could save them. And this was the God that Paul was making known to them. And Paul goes on and he says, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. You do realize that God did not institute the, the sacrificial system given to Moses and the children of Israel because God needed lambs and goats and bulls to eat or to be sacrificed. It's not that God needed anything. The whole system was, was about what man needed. It was to reveal what man needed. It was not about what God needed. God did not need those sacrifices. God didn't take pleasure in those sacrifices. The whole point was to reveal that man needed a savior and that sin brought real death to this world. So Paul is making known that he is a God, that this God who they worship and they do not know is the God who needs nothing from man. Since it is this God who gives to all life and breath and all things are given to us by God. What do we have in this world that did not come from God? This is the God that Paul is making known. A God who is not dependent upon man, but in fact man is dependent upon God. This is true whether men know it, whether men acknowledge it or not. God is who he is whether men believe in him, whether men acknowledge him or not. The truth is the truth. And the truth is not relative to what man believes or what man says. Paul goes on and he says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Man is who he is. Man is when he is. And man is where he is because of God. Why weren't you born 2,000 years ago? Why weren't you born 100 years into the future? You and I are here because this is our pre-appointed time of visitation on this earth. This is our time. And God, not because you filled out the form before your birth and picked America to be the place of your birth because it was the best place you could be born. No, that's the grace of God. That's all it is, is the grace of God. And this is what Paul is saying. God made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the, all the face of the earth. And it is this God that has determined the pre-appointed times and boundaries of men's dwellings. 
It is God who has created mankind from one blood. That means of every nation that dwells on the face of the earth, there is only one race of man. There's only the human race. I don't care what the government forms say. I don't care what the questionnaires say. There is only one race. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what country of origin you're from. It doesn't matter what political correctness says. We are all of one blood of one race, created by one God. God has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And ultimately, it is not the might of man, but the almighty God that determines the who, the when, and the where of any and all nations. God certainly does not work apart from the choices men and nations make. And there are consequences to the choices nations make. And I believe we are living with the consequences of the choices this nation we live in called America has made over the last several decades and generations. And, and we, may, we may be seeing the beginnings of that. I don't know. But God does not work apart from the choices that men and nations make. But it is not by choice, but God's divine purpose that men and nations rise and fall. This nation rose to be because of God's divine purpose. And when God's divine purpose is done, this nation could go away. I pray that does not happen. But we need to live and deal with reality. We should not be people who stick our heads in the sand and just pretend like everything's going to be okay if we just ignore everything. We need to be people who are living life with our eyes wide open, who are seeing and discerning what's happening, and we need to be taking those things to prayer to God, and we need to be obeying God and doing what Jesus commanded his church to do, which is to go out and disciple the nations. Because that's how we're going to change the world, one life at a time, one disciple at a time. And so out of divine love, God made man for his own glory. God made man that man would worship him. Paul goes on, he says, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Think about the picture Paul is presenting there of blind men groping that's basically what he's saying you philosophers are doing. This is what man does. Man in his perceived wisdom is nothing more than a blind being groping for what he doesn't know. But God, the good news is God is not far. God is not far from each of us. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen all around us. The problem is not that God is too far or that God is not visible enough or that God is unknown. The problem is that man in his sin suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Paul lays out the problem very effectively in his letter to the Romans. Listen to Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. This is what man does. He exchanges the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. That is the text and the subject of our upcoming Sunday school lesson. And I would encourage you to come because it's going to be very enlightening as to what's happening in our world today and in our nation today and in the church today. So Paul reminds them, he tells them that this God that they are groping after is the God that is close to them. But we deceive ourselves into thinking men just don't know. So we say, well, men are ignorant. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that men do know, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Apart from the Lord Jesus, we are dead. We may be walking and talking and alive physically, but without Christ in us, we are in fact dead. And Paul goes on and he says in verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. In him, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. Only in Christ do we live. Only in Christ do we have life. We may be moving. We may be mobile. We may be walking and talking and breathing. But if we are not in Christ and Christ is not in us, we are not alive. It's not in the idols that those people had all around them, but in the true and living God who made heaven and earth and all that is in it. Paul, an educated man and very familiar with the Greek culture, that had influenced so much of the known world for several centuries now. So Greek was the language, like English is the language of commerce in the world today. Greek was the language of commerce in the world in that day and had been for centuries. Greek was the center of culture in the world, even though Rome ruled the world. It was Greek culture that had influenced and still influences so much of who we are today. And Paul... This educated man understood. He understood the influence of Greek culture that had been so much to the world, that had meant so much to the world. And being familiar with this culture, he 
alludes to the Greek poets. More than one Greek poet had made the statement that we are, in fact, offspring of God, for we are also his offspring. So it is to these several Greek poets that Paul is referring when he reminds his audience that even their own poets have said that we are God's offspring. Now, Paul is referencing writings that refer to the Greek gods. So that was referring to Zeus, the supreme Greek god, or Jupiter, the supreme Roman god. But what Paul is pointing out, even your poets understand there is a God, a creator, and we are, in fact, his offspring. He's pointing this out, that even those Greek poets held in high regard acknowledge that we are humans and we are made in God's image. And in that sense of being made in the image of God, we are the offspring of God. Therefore, the true and living God of creation is worthy of our worship. Paul's saying, God is not in these objects you have sprinkled all around this city. He's not in these temples. He's not in these shrines. He's too big for that. You are made in his image. You are his offspring because you bear the fingerprint of God in your very creation. And that is the God that is worthy of our worship. And that God alone is the one worthy of our worship. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. Man does not shape God, but it is God who shapes man and gives to man life. God is not gold or silver or stone that is shaped by art or man's imagination. God is eternal. He is the beginning and the end, or in the Greek term, he is the alpha and the omega. God is not created, but he is creator. God is not part of his creation. God is apart from his creation. This goes to the whole philosophy of oneism and twoism. Paganism is oneism and says God and the creation are all the same. Twoism says there is a creator and there is a creation, and they are two very distinct and separate things. And this is what Paul is pointing out to these Greek philosophers. God is not part of his creation. God is apart from his creation. He is above it and completely other than his creation. This is still man's sin today. This is what we're struggling with today. It's why I read the article to you this morning in Sunday school about the new house rules that abolish all gender distinction in the United States House of Representatives. You can't say father, you can't say mother anymore there. It's against the rules. Because we have to abolish all distinction. This is what Peter Jones, the the, the gentleman who's writing our Sunday school curriculum is talking about. It's not just destroying the distinction between man and God. In an effort to do that, we're going to destroy the distinctions that exist across the board. And we're seeing that done in ways that we could not have imagined just a few short years ago. And you can see where it's going to go in the future. Because if, if everything is God and everything's essence is divine, then what's the difference between my dog or the pig that was slaughtered yesterday 
or the steak you or I might eat for dinner one night. Well, there is no difference. And this is why Hindus, devout Hindus, don't eat cows. Don't step on bugs and kill them because it's divine. You say, well, that would never happen in America. Really? It's happening right now. It's happening right now. It's what they're teaching our children in school right now. It's what our leaders in Washington are doing right now. It's happening. This is what Paul is speaking against in Athens 2,000 years ago to these philosophers who, who worshiped the creation but rejected the creator. Verse 30, Paul says, truly, these times of ignorance, when men worship the creation instead of the creator, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. God in his grace has overlooked the ignorance of man, in fact, has overlooked the sinfulness of man, the willing sinfulness of man, but now commands all men everywhere to repent of their sin. God is commanding men everywhere to repent of their suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, not just 2,000 years ago in Athens, but today in 2021, God is saying it is time for men to repent because he has appointed, verse 31, he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained and has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Here's where Paul lost the Greeks, right here. There is a judgment day coming for Greeks, for Jews, for all men of all times. God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He has committed this judgment to the man whom he has ordained, and he's given us assurance that this is the man because he raised him from the dead. This is the difference. There are poems about Zeus and Jupiter in movies, and books that testify to them. But there is an empty tomb that testifies to Jesus Christ. All the objects of worship, all the temples and shrines and sacred places spoke of all the religious devotion of the people of Athens for hundreds of years. It was all useless religion. Even if it was very sincere, it was sincerely wrong. There are people today who are very sincere in their religious devotion, but they are sincerely wrong. And we have an obligation as believers in Jesus Christ to tell them the truth, even if the truth may offend them. This is always true when our religious devotion is to anyone or anything other than the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ and the triune Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit. If our religious devotion is to anyone or anything other than that, it is wrong, it is false. We can be sincere in our misplaced beliefs. We can devote ourselves to good works and giving ourselves and our treasure to good causes. We can sincerely desire and work to make a difference in this world. We can do all of that and more, but if we are not saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it is all useless in terms of our salvation. God might use it for his glory and his good and for his purpose, but in terms of our salvation, it's absolutely useless. 
The only hope of salvation anyone at any time has is in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is his resurrection that gives us assurance that Christ is the Savior alone, the judge alone, and the Lord alone. This is the good news that Paul was bringing to Athens and to the world. In verse 32, it says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. It is the resurrection that sets Christ and Christianity apart from all others. Without the resurrection, there is no Christ, and there is no Christianity. Many of those philosophers Paul spoke to were not interested in a physical resurrection because it did not match their worldview of atomic structures and everything going back into the great cosmic mix of whatever that created everything. Some mocked Paul because the thought of a resurrection from the dead seemed absurd to them. Not just unbelievable, but pointless and absurd. When we consider the reaction that Paul received because of the gospel, we see that much has not changed in terms of man's sinful nature and his suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. Because of amazing technology, the progress of civilization and living standards, along with the ever-increasing amount of knowledge we possess today, we believe that modern man is different from ancient man. But fundamentally, he is not. Whether we are talking about ancient Athenian philosophers or modern-day millennials, the sinful nature of man is the same from generation to generation. His experience on planet earth may be different, but his sin is not. From generation to generation, man by the flesh is born into this world in sin and death. And from generation to generation, man by the spirit must be born again into Christ to be saved from sin and death. This is the timeless power of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to all who believe throughout all of time. Colossians 2.8, Paul writes, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. This is a direct reference to the philosophers of the day, whether Greek or Jewish. Paul is warning all believers, including us today, that empty philosophies crafted according to the traditions of men and the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ are empty and deceitful and will cheat those who follow them from the very salvation they need. We must know that all philosophies that are according to the traditions of men and the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ, provide a worldview that is powerless to save us. God created the world and its basic principles, and those Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Paul's day developed their philosophies and their worldviews based on atomic structures and the material world. They looked to the natural order of things and the laws that govern, that govern it all, just like we do today. They developed their worldview from the creation given to them by God and all the while rejecting the creator. The creator is revealed through his creation. 
but the creation must never become the object of our worship. Man is constantly tempted to exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. This is what the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers of Athens did. This is what our modern-day philosophers of evolution do. They reject the creator and worship and serve the creature. Such philosophies paraded as science cheat us and are empty and deceitful. The creator gave us the creation, and his creation clearly reveals his invisible attributes. We are to worship the creator and him alone. Before the material world, before one Adam existed, God was. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Do you know what the only thing that was not made, do you know what that is? God. God is the only thing that exists that was not made. Everything else in the creation was made by God. Paul was affirming the words of the Apostle John and proclaiming the God who is the gospel, the God who is both creator and savior, the creator God who humbled himself and put on flesh in order to save his creation. He came to the world he alone created. He came to the men he created in his own image from one blood. And John chapter one goes on in verse 10. It says, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, this God, this creator, Savior, came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who are born not by their own will, not by the will of the flesh, but by the will of God. Those who are born again of the will of God. This is the God who has revealed himself to his children. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us. The word who now dwells among us because he now dwells in us by the Spirit. We behold his glory if we have eyes of faith to see. In Christ, we are born again his child and we are given the fullness of his grace and truth. This is the good news. This is good news. Paul was dismissed from this council upon his mission of the, upon his mention of the resurrection, but not before the gospel did its work. Paul understood this. This is why Paul would go to the marketplace every day, and the Bible says that he would talk to whoever happened to be there. Because Paul knew that whoever happened to be there didn't just happen to be there because Paul believed that God had divinely appointed 
that person or those persons. Just like God had divinely appointed him to go to that rocky hill and speak to this ancient council. And it didn't matter to Paul how well he was received. He had his open door to preach the gospel. And Paul wasn't depending upon himself to do the hard work of convincing men. Paul was trusting in the power of gospel to do the work that only God could do through the gospel. And he was a faithful, obedient messenger who delivered the message. And as a result of that, when he departed, it says that some men joined him and believed. Among them was Dionysius, the Areopagite. I have a, I have a hard time with that word, the Areopagite. In other words, he was a member of that council. So the very people that were questioning Paul, Paul wasn't on trial. They were trying to figure out what was going on, and they were going to judge, and they were going to tell the people, don't listen to this guy or listen to this guy. He's got something worthy to say or he has nothing worthy to say. And one of the men who was making that judgment about Paul and the message of the gospel actually joined Paul and believed. This is the power of the gospel. This is why we need to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel, faithful in living the gospel. Everywhere we go, in everything that we do, because people are watching and people are listening in ways that we don't even realize. We never know how God will work through our proclamation of the gospel. Whether it is to many in the marketplace or to an audience or a council or a congregation or to just an audience of one person. The gospel must be proclaimed for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. For all and any who believe. This is what Jesus commands us to do. When Mark says... In Mark's gospel, preach the gospel to every creature. He's not saying something different than what Matthew wrote when he says, go into all the world and make disciples of the nations. To preach the gospel is to disciple the nations. To disciple the nations is to preach the gospel. You can't disciple someone without the gospel. If you're discipling people without the gospel, just stop because you're creating useless religion. And the gospel will filter out everything else that is useless religion and false religion. And we cannot be a people afraid to use that filter of the gospel to identify those things that are false and a lie. It doesn't matter how popular they are. It doesn't matter how much of the world is running after those things. It doesn't matter what the consequence may be. In proclaiming that truth, we have to be a people who stand firm in the truth of the gospel, proclaiming that, trusting that God will use that gospel even, even in the midst of consequences that may be less desirable than we would like. That, has how, that is how God has worked throughout history. Read the history of the church. We've lived in a very blessed time in this nation. We've not known hardship, relatively speaking, the way much of the world has, the way much of the church has throughout history. We may get our time yet. I don't know. 
But we need to be prepared. We need to be ready. We need to be centered in the gospel, grounded in the gospel. We need to be willing to speak the truth in love no matter what. Because that is the only hope men have of salvation. There is no other philosophy. There is no other belief system that men can turn to to save them. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And we are his people. We are his body in the earth. And if we are not going to make him known, then who will do that? Because God isn't sending angels from heaven. He's sending you. You are his angels. You are his messengers. We are his messengers, flesh and blood. We carry the message of the gospel, the message of hope. And we should carry it well. Amen? Let's get ready to come to the table. You don't have to be a member of Christ Fellowship Church to take communion here. You just need to be a member of the church, the universal church. That's why we confess the creed. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We believe in the church that Paul established 2,000 years ago. We believe in the church that was established 2,000 years before Paul. We believe in the church today. We believe in the church that will be built and developed and established in the future as we continue preaching the gospel from generation to generation to generation. So if you count yourself a member of his body, if you are trusting in Jesus, looking to him, come to the table and welcome to Jesus. When you think of the means that God uses to bring salvation, you have to think about how Jesus was born, where Jesus was born. You have to think about how God conquered the world through the crucifixion of his son. And you see that God works in such contrary ways to the world. I think about that often as we're in this building with all the little children, and I see these hardworking mamas taking their babies out who are crying and won't be quiet. And I always think of the psalm that says God is has perfected praise through the, through the mouths of infants. And God steals the avenger. The spiritual warfare that God uses even through the most unassuming and innocent means. Children eating bread and drinking cups that they don't fully understand, but yet their faith in the God they know all of this is the means that God uses to conquer the world. All of this is the means that God uses to make disciples. We can't think it's just what we do out there. It's what we do in here. And it's not just what we do in here. It's what we do in our homes. It's what we do when we're alone. It's what we're, we do when we're with a group of people. It, it's who we are. It's our life. It's our lifestyle. And I think you know this in our charge today to know that philosophy cannot save us, to know that religion cannot save us, to know that spirituality cannot save us. Only Jesus can save us.
Now, there are philosophies and religions and spirituality that can be defined in and by and through Jesus. But to be saved by Jesus is to think and believe and live according to Jesus. Faith in Jesus demands obedience to Jesus. And to worship God is to obey God. And this is what we were created to do. We were created to worship Him and to glorify Him. And God will be glorified both through our obedience as well as our disobedience. I pray that we are a people who choose to glorify God through our obedience. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God.